Hey everyone, this is Free Food for Thought, a student-run, student-focused podcast here to feed your curiosity. I'm Skip. And I'm Melanie, and today we are thrilled to have Kay Ryan with us. Kay is a United States Poet Laureate and Pulitzer Prize-winning poet. Her collections of poetry include The Niagara River, Say Uncle, Elephant Rocks, and the 2011 Pulitzer Prize-winning The Best of It, New and Selected Poems. Ryan's other awards include a MacArthur Genius Award, the National Humanities Medal awarded by President Obama in 2012, the Ruth Lilly Poetry Prize, a Guggenheim Fellowship, and an Ingram Merrill Award. In 2008, she was appointed as the Library of Congress's 16th Poet Laureate Consultant in Poetry. Her most recent book of poems, Erratic Facts, was published in October of 2015. Thank you so much for joining us, Kay. My pleasure. So to get started, we always ask our guests about this concept of inflection points, or points where you felt you needed to pivot or grow in your personal or professional life. Um, would you mind sharing with our listeners a moment or two? I would be happy to do that. I, I'm the kind of person who really didn't expect to have those. I sort of, I sort of uh, don't operate consciously in that way. But uh, when I was 30, I had, I had been writing, but uh, I had only been writing for myself. And I was, I was a teacher at the time. I taught at College of Marin in, in, in Marin County, California. And uh, I wasn't I wasn't thoroughly satisfied with that as a full life, you know, that was, was all right to do, but it wasn't satisfying me. And I found that my brain was being taken over by poetry. I mean, it was simply, it was simply being, being, uh, uh, I was being kidnapped in a sense. And, uh, I, I didn't know what to do about this. I, uh, I didn't know whether I should pursue poetry. It seemed ridiculous. I, this was in the 1970s and, uh, Poets tended to be very um, 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 confessional and dramatic, and my nature is to be not confessional and not dramatic. And I didn't want to wear the, the cloak of the poet. I didn't. I didn't like. I didn't like that at all. But I, at the same time, I did feel as though I was writing, and I couldn't help writing, and and I had had to figure out what I was going to do about that. Well, at the same time, this was 1976. And there was a bicycle ride across the United States. It, it was the bicentennial, and there was and there was a cross-country bike route called the Bike Centennial. And my partner and I at that time uh, decided to uh, bicycle across the United States, starting in Oregon and ending in Virginia. And um, I didn't tell her that I had an alternate, uh, uh, an ulterior motive, but I did. My motive, my real deep motive, was I wanted to sit down for four months on a, on a bicycle seat and think. I wanted, I wanted to think this through, and when I got to the other side of the country, I wanted to know what I was going to do. So I, we started, and nothing much happened for the first thousand miles or so. Uh, and then, and then when we got to Colorado, to the to the Colorado Rockies, um, we we were up. We, we were, we were uh, going up Hoosier Pass in the Rockies, and I had this astonishing experience of, of all, the, all the borders vanishing in my mind. And, 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 and I, I, I had incredible mental power and, and flexibility. And uh, I felt like I also, I also felt that I had become, in a sense, porous, and that I could pass through a tree, or a tree could pass through me. Mm. But in other words, I was, I was in a, in an altered state, probably owing to oxygen right. deficiency. <laughs> the exercise, mm -hmm. yeah. you know, yeah. But in any case, I was in an altered state for whatever reason, and uh, uh, I thought 
after I just had a little fun with the condition, I mean, because, you know, it was like I had this amazing trick kite. Uh, but I realized, no, this is your chance to ask the question. And so I did ask the very question that, that was preoccupying me. Shall I be a writer? I couldn't even say poet because you know, it was just too embarrassing to me, even to say to myself or, or whatever great force it was I was attempting to address. Um, but I said, Sh shall I be a writer? And I don't know what answer I might have expected to get in return, but the answer I got was a complete surprise. The answer was, do you like it? Do you like it? That was it. That was the entire answer. And it was utterly satisfactory I, because I knew, I knew completely that I did like it. And, and, and apparently that was the only requirement was that, was that I had to like it. I had to, I, had to be, I had to want to do this thing, and I did want to do it. So I went down the other side of that mountain, that very high mountain, knowing what I was going to do with the entire rest of my life. And I also knew that I would soil this, this memory. I mean, like, that this, th this thing that had happened to me could never be preserved in its purity. Mm -hmm. And so what I did was I, I took it and conceptually wrapped it in, a, a, in a, a white handkerchief and put it in my chest. Uh, uh, and, uh, and I knew then it would stay in there and even I couldn't hurt it. I would, I would tell the story many times, as I have, but I could never damage it and it would always remain perfect in, in, inside of me. And I, so that's a true inflection point, I'll tell you. Mm -hmm. yeah. But the problem is I had to go down the other side of the mountain, had no idea how to do what I, what I was going to do. And how was the rest of the bike ride? The rest of the bike ride was was very good, and it was a relief because I knew what I was going to do. So I'm not sure where in time this fits, but we had read that as you were maybe past this point, but you can tell me if it was earlier, that once you'd sort of decided to start writing, you had sort of what the piece called a self-imposed apprenticeship. And they talked about you looking to Ripley's for creative inspiration, the Ripley's Believe It or Not books. Was that part of the post-mountain process of deciding to start your career, and how did you yeah, train yourself yeah, to yeah, do yeah. it? Yeah, it was absolutely. I mean, I had to go down, and I did not know how to begin. I mean, I knew I knew that I was going to. I knew I was going to. But this is, this is what I did. I came down, and I had kept, on, on the bike ride, I had kept uh, a notebook, you know, a, a record, a journal of the bike ride. And so when I went down and got home again, I lived in a little town called Forest Knowles, and I had a, a high desk. Uh, I sat at a stool at my high desk in the front room, and uh, I, I set myself the project of every day uh, simply transcribing that, that notebook. Uh, and that, that gave me the habit of daily practice, daily writing. And, and it was also safe, you know, it wasn't, wasn't scary or anything. And then when I'd finished that, I needed another project. And the project that I set upon was, uh, uh, I, I had a, a tarot uh, set, uh, a deck, a tarot deck, and I had a book about the tarot. But I didn't have the patience for the tarot. You know, you, you, I, I couldn't really learn about all those things. It sort of bored me and really wasn't interesting. But the, but the, the cards themselves were really interesting. So what I did was I learned the method of this special arcane method of flipping the cards over. So I would turn them over. I would turn one card over every day, and I would I made gave myself the task of writing a, writing a poem about what, what I was calling a poem. What, about about whatever 
card came up. And so, of course, some cards, and I, and I set myself the project of doing as many as there were tarot cards in a deck. So, so some kept coming up and some never came up at all. But one of the really good things about the project, other than once again getting me to work constantly, was that it, um, it made me write about things that I didn't want to write about. <laughs> because the tarot cards are things like, you know, I mean, like one is death, one is love, one is the hierophant. I mean, there are all kinds of weird things and, and things that, that I would not have chosen to write about. So I thought it was very good that I was compelled to, to uh, essay topics that were unpleasant to me or, or inimical. So you've said before you don't actually spend much time reading other people's poetry at That's all. That's very true. Um, and I'm, I'm just very curious about that, uh, particularly because, uh, in addition, your notions, as you were saying on your bike ride, you had a kind of a, a negative reaction to being called a poet or thinking of yourself yes, as a yes. poet. I, I didn't mind so much being what I thought of as a poet, but I did not want to be what the popu was in the popular mind as a poet. Uh -huh. And what, so how, how did you kind of, what led you into that path of, of eventually embracing that, um, especially given other forms of writing that are also very accessible, like you know essays or books? Well, the, the reason I did it was that it was the exact thing that satisfied my, my, right. my mind. And, and no other form of writing did that. I've written prose. As a matter of fact, I have a, a book of prose coming out next year of, of you know occasional essays and whatnot that I've written over the course of the years. But that's always seemed to me less clearly my voice. Uh, it's always seemed imposed mm. in a way or, or filled with responsibility in a way that I've never felt about poetry. Poetry has always felt to me like the the, the, the perfect freedom of my mind. I could go there and, and, and be free. Hmm. That's awesome. So one of the uh, curiosities I had about the development of your poetry writing is how that melded with your experience as a performer and performing your own poets. Did those two always go hand in hand or was it only later that you started um, performing your poets coming to places like the Ath to do live poetry readings? Do you think those always go together? Uh, no, I do not. As a matter of fact, my, my real affection is for the word on the page. I really I really and truly think that that is where poetry truly survives. It's, I mean, it's lovely to hear the voice, or it can be. It can also be very, very, very distracting to hear the voice, or it can be, or it can mislead us terrifically. It can make us think things are much better than they are uh, uh, because because they're, they're read well, or because they're exciting to hear once. Well, I'm curious that you say that, particularly because your poems have such a lyricality and, and such a kind of mellifluous nature, where they just are very rich, and you can kind of hear that in the in the rhyme scheme. I, I would I would think maybe you'd be more interested in having them heard aloud. I know that the words can jump off the page, especially with your skilled use of diction. But I'm just kind of curious at how how you kind of balance that um, the the very lyrical nature of your poetry versus your interest in keeping it on the page. Well, uh, I I do like I do like to hear myself read. It's true, uh, and and I also enjoy something that means a lot to me is if if somebody else reads my poem. And they read it the way that I the way that I meant it. it. It's very touching to me to think that I succeeded in putting it on the page so that it could be uh, acquired by whoever whoever came to the page. Um, but I I think I truly think that the most interesting voice that we ever hear, the most interesting poetry voice, is the one that we can't share, and that is 
the one that's in our head. When we, when we read something, you know how it comes to life for you when, when you're reading it. And nobody will ever hear the voice in your head. They can't. And it's, it's, it's the most powerful voice that you have. I mean, just think, just think of Emily Dickinson's voice. I mean, nobody ever, nobody heard her. I mean, but she, but she had a mighty voice, an utterly mighty voice in that head. So when you talk about the the voice in your head and the voice that comes out as a writer, we'd heard you say uh, that you didn't love some of your older books or the books that came out when you were first starting out and that, that you hadn't established your true voice yet and you think it's hard for anyone to when you're first starting out. I do. Are there, are there ways to get there faster or, or more interestingly if or now are, that you look back? If there back? are, I don't, I, don't, I don't know what they are. I think, I think, I think you have to go through all the stages of discovery. And, and this is one of the things that I think, and that is that uh, you, you have to think you're better than you are when you start. You really, you really. I think you're you're kind of required to have a good opinion of yourself, that that may be entirely misplaced. But you, but you need that good opinion. You you need the protection that you need to give yourself protection because the world is certainly not going to give it to you. Uh, so uh, I think I think you have to I think you have to go ahead, and you you have to remain keen to the parts that seem alive to you and keep going in that direction. I mean, like for me, it took me quite a long time, really, to discover that I adored rhyme and that I adored a very strange form of rhyme and all sorts of complexity of, of rhyme that weren't even identifiable at that time as rhyme. Uh, and it, but it took me books to learn that. Is it clear to you now where that voice established itself or do you think critics sometimes talk about your work and misplace a point in time where you found your voice and progressed from there does that question even make sense in the context of your work uh i i couldn't tell you i mean i can see when i had it i by by the time i published uh uh flamingo watching which would be in the middle 90s i had it i had it and and interestingly enough flamingo watching was a book which was long delayed in its publication. I mean, I mean, the, the, the book that I'd published before that, which was called uh, Strangely Marked Metal, was nine years previous. And I hadn't wanted to publish uh, uh, Flamingo Watching with Copper Beach, which, which was the publisher of, of uh, Strangely Marked Metal. And I was trying to get a better publisher, uh, you know, like a New York Press or something like that, something good or better, bigger. And I, I was never able to do it, so I finally had to go once again with Copper Beach Press. But but in the, those nine years, so that I was well, I was, I was well into my forties by then. Uh, I had acquired over the course of those nine years my mature style. So turning now to your time as poet laureate, first of all, in, in two thousand eight, first of all, what was your reaction getting getting that call, becoming the sixteenth poet laureate of the United States? Well, it, I was appalled. Uh, uh, I it was a very difficult time in my life. My partner Carol uh, w was not simply diagnosed with cancer. She was in in the last stages of her life, uh, and uh, we knew that. And when I got this call, we were just coming back from uh, the Aspen Festival, uh, the Aspen Ideas Festival, which is the very last place we went together. I'd been invited to read there. And uh, we came in, and there was, a, there was a message on the phone. That was back when you, you, know, you had phone messages. <laughs> and, uh, and so I, I picked up the message, and, and it was from 
the Librarian of Congress, uh, Dr. Billington, and uh, he, he said that he wanted me to call him as soon as I could. And uh, I knew what it had to be. It wasn't, it wasn't that I was expecting this call because I really wasn't, although people had occasionally said to me something like, what, you could be the Poet Laureate. And I said, well, I would never do that. I would never accept it. So, uh, so I, 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 I knew it, it simply couldn't be anything else. I mean, like I said to Carol, I said, it's not, from, you know, it's not because I have overdue library books. You know? <laughs> so, so before I called, before I called back, I talked to Carol. I went. I went in the bedroom. She was sitting on the bed, and I said, "Carol, I know that I'm going to be asked to be poet laureate, and I don't want to do it." And she, she, she said, "Okay, why?" And I told her because it is completely alien to my nature. I'm private, and uh, um, I don't have much. Social conscience, you know. I don't. I don't have. I don't have. I don't have. I don't have ambitions for social programs for for uh, poetry or anything like that. I don't even particularly believe in it. Uh, and uh, I, uh, I don't want to be public in that way. I have no desire to be public in that way. And uh, she listened to everything I had to say, which I think was probably more extensive and articulate than I'm making it now. And um, and she said. All right, then, she said, do it for me. Well, there wasn't any answer to that. She wanted me to do it, you know. She wanted me to do it. And uh, at the time, I mean, at the time, she had a variety of reasons for wanting me to do it. She'd always been a gigantic advocate of my work. And it was a kind of a triumph, you know, for her. Because it, it was like, look, you guys, I was right. I was right about her, you know. And... Uh, she also liked the fact that it took the attention off of her because when you're when you're really sick, you get way too much attention that you don't want. So, so she liked that too. And only later did I figure out she was also thinking, this will this will take care of Kay. She will be safe. She will. They never they never let poet laureates die in the gutter. Uh, uh, so so she'll she'll be she'll be safe in a way, and it'll, it will help 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 her financially. You know, she will be. She will be secure in, in a way, secured by this thing. So, but I didn't realize that till later. So, could you tell us a bit more about what you actually did as the poet laureate and what parts of the role you enjoyed, how how it was for you? Well, I will tell you that the part the the part that I that I came to enjoy most was going around to the the community colleges of the United States and giving readings because I always taught my entire career. I never taught creative writing. I taught for well over 30 years, always part-time, but uh, my teaching was always in basic English skills, which is really rudimentary stuff, you know, teaching people how to write paragraphs. If we're, we're really lucky that summer, that, that semester, we would get all the way through paragraph writing and basic, basic reading skills, very, things like that. So I was always teaching very basic things to, to people who, who needed them, and it gave me great satisfaction to go around the country to, to community colleges and read in their cafeterias and whatnot. You know, it was never very elegant. It wasn't like here. Uh, and uh, and the, 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 I can't tell you how gratifying it was to the community college teachers to have, to have that attention because community colleges don't get very much uh, glory, you know. And, and the students were very pleased about it, too. So it was, 
that was a wonderful thing. So that was my favorite part. And you've said you're uh, ambitious to have a simple life. Yeah. So uh, did that I've kind of- I've been extremely successful at it. You have. Yeah. Did that, did, were those couple years being Poet Laureate, did that- uh, It's a blight, it was a brief blight. A brief blight. Yeah. <laughs> wonderful. I've well, overcome it. Um, you, <laughs> you've also um, called silence uh, the soil of my language. So um, kind of everything you do, kind of growing out of, of silence, which I found fascinating. And you've written about it too in, in some of your poems. Where do you think that love of silence comes from for you? Well, I mean, it seems native to all of us. I mean, I would think uh, it's, it's, it shocks me to think about all the people who seem to be able to uh, to give it away so easily. But uh, I also would have to say that I came from uh, a, a very quiet home, uh, so that would that would be that would be right. one thing. I mean, I was probably I was probably predisposed to silence, but but then I also had a mother who 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 had at the time people people were just they were called nervous, you know, they didn't have diseases or anything like that. They were just, they were just referred to as nervous. And my mother was nervous and we had to live very quietly. We didn't have, we didn't have a lot of, you know, uh, dogs and, and televisions and, and uh, door slammings and things like that. We had a lot of, a lot of quiet. And so since, since leaving the, the Poet Laureate position, you've been able to restore that sense of quiet and and that's very important to your your writing process do you always write in, in quiet places and in your home away from I always, away from people yeah I uh, yes I do I, uh, I I'm a bed writer uh, uh, I've, I've gone through a lot of pajamas <laughs> <laughs> so I, I I'm a morning writer too uh, early morning early morning is best before anything is uh, muddy when your brain is freest and clearest so unfortunately, we only have time for one more question, uh, but it's a question we ask all of our guests. Um, what is your personal definition of success, and what advice would you give to students or any listeners um, in defining success for themselves? Well, I suppose success is being able to bear yourself, uh, um, to be able to, you know, to find to find some way to get through this. Um, in a, in a way that is that is uh, tolerable to you, um, um, and uh, and I, that's a really hard question. Uh, and how would how would I how would I encourage people to to? I, I think I think I have the most ordinary advice for anybody, and that is, go in the direction of of that which you cannot resist. Uh, hopefully, it'll be a good thing and not a bad thing. All right. Well, thank you so much for that answer and, and for coming to speak with us today. Appreciate My it. My pleasure. Uh, and to all our listeners, remember to stay hungry. <laughs>